in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and God, Amen. Our Bible is studied tonight from Psalm 109. This psalm is titled, To the Chief Musician, a Psalm of David. That's the title of the psalm. The chief musician is thought to be the Lord Jesus Christ. But others thought that the chief musician is the leader of the choir, or leader of the musicians during David's time, like Haman or Asaph. And according to the title, A Psalm of David, so the author is David. It is not certain that David wrote it on what occasion, we don't know. Maybe during the time of the rebellion of his son Absalom, or maybe during the time of persecution by King Saul. David also might have a Chitofel in mind, or Duag the Adomite. Duag the Adomite, you can read his story in 1 Samuel chapter 21, verse 7. And Duag the Adomite, who was the chief of the herdsmen who belonged to Saul. This psalm, it is a messianic psalm, mean it prophesy about the Lord Jesus Christ prophesy about his suffering and his persecutors. Especially, it contains a prophecy against Judas and the enemies of our Lord Jesus Christ. And St. Peter confirmed that this is a prophecy about Judas in his speech that we read it in Acts chapter 1 and verse 16. So the Holy Spirit foresaw the sin of Judas and prophesied through prophet David about this sin and about the destruction that will happen to Judas because of the sin of betrayal. This son has been a challenge to many Christians for centuries because of its language and some they call it the psalm of curse, psalm of curse. But according to St. John Chrysostom, this psalm would probably confuse some if taken according to its apparent meaning. Because if you read it and you have no idea about Judas, then you are going to ask and question how a person stands before God and cursing others or wishing bad for others. This actually is not a psalm of curse. It is the Holy Spirit prophesied on the mouth of David about what will happen to Judas. So it was not a curse upon Judas, but it is a prophecy about what will happen to Judas. As St. John Chrysostom clearly explained, and he said, it is a psalm of curse that reveals the anger of the speaker whose heart burns with bitterness toward his oppressor He who does not stop at seeking his punishment, as if is a praying person, David, is not stopping at seeking his punishment, but wishes that another would take his office, take office of the enemy, and that on him God's mercy would not dwell, and that he would die in early age, and that all calamities would be poured on his household. And then St. John said, no. It is difficult to imagine such an intense hatred to be in the heart of David against his enemies. 
however great is their animosity toward him. But this son is actually a prophecy. So it is not David is hating somebody and wishing all these bad stuff to happen to him. No, it is a prophecy about what is to come over Judas who delivered his Lord by a bitter betrayal. And this was confirmed by the Apostle Peter in his talk on the day of Pentecost as we read in Acts chapter 1 and verse 20. So the father have not preoccupied themselves with the historical background of this psalm because they know this psalm maybe does not refer to any historical event in the life of David as much as they saw it as a prophecy about the betrayal of Judas against the Lord Jesus Christ and the hatred of the Jews and their religious leadership. And the talk of the Apostle Peter to the disciples concerning choosing another Apostle instead of Judas when they chose Matthias as it came in book of Acts chapter 1 from verse 15 to 25 testifies the three things. Number one, the author is David. Number two, the son is inspired by the Holy Spirit. Number three, what came in and this psalm was literally realized in Judas the traitor. If we go to Acts chapter 1, St. Peter says, Men and brethren, this scripture, Psalm 109, had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke. So this psalm actually is written by the Holy Spirit, before by the mouth of David, and David is the author of the psalm, concerning Judas. So there are three facts here. Number one, it is inspired by the Holy Spirit. The author is David about Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. Now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his entrails gushed out. And it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem, so that the field is called in their own language Akil Dama, that is field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, where in Psalm 109, that we'll study tonight, what's written, let his dwelling place be desolate, and let no one live in it, and let another take his office. Of course, when you read this, without knowing it's about Judas, you can say how a person in front of God in prayer, he is saying all of this. So it is not a hatred in the heart of David against his enemies, no. It is just a prophecy. As he said, the Holy Spirit spoke on the mouth of David. Also, St. Augustine says, everyone who faithfully reads the Acts of the Apostle acknowledges that the psalm contains a prophecy of Christ, for it evidently appears that what is here written, let his days be few, let another take his office, is prophesied of Judas, the betrayer of Christ. St. Augustine continues and says, Judas represents those Jews who were enemies of Christ, who both then hated Christ, and now in their line of succession and their descendant, this species of wickedness continuing, hating him, hating Christ. Of these men and of these people, 
not only may what we read more openly discovered in this psalm be conveniently understood, but also those things which are more explicitly stated concerning Judas himself. So again, it is a prophecy about Judas. This psalm is 31 verses, from 1 to 5, a prayer for deliverance, 6 to 20, the destiny of the wicked, 21 to 29, a plea for help, 30 and 31, confidently praising God for his answer. We actually will stop at verse 15 or 16 today, half of the psalm. Verse 1. Do not keep silent, O God, of my praise. In the midst of the bitterness, he was feeling because of the oppression by those he loved. We see the eyes of David concentrate on O God of my praise. David felt he is oppressed by his enemies. What would he do? The only thing we do when we are oppressed by others to lift up our eyes to God. In truth, the secret of strength of David and the purity of his heart is that his heart has been so fully preoccupied with God. Even during the time of persecution, his heart and mind focusing on God. David said to God, do not keep silent, meaning do not neglect me. Take notice of my extreme danger and misery. David was once again in trouble, surrounded by many enemies. And God saw what his enemies did against him. But God seemed to keep silence. He only asks the Lord to speak. A word from God is all a believer needs. God, if you speak, if you say only one word, all these things will will end. All what I'm expecting from you, just one word. Do you remember the father who sent to the Lord Jesus Christ a message about his son and he told him, say a word and my son will be healed? That's all what I need from you, God. One word. Don't be silent. He's asking God to break his silence and to silence his enemies, those who insult him. It is the cry of a man whose confidence in God is deep and his communion with God is very close and bold. Yes, sometimes the Lord seems to us as if he has forsaken us, as if he is standing at a distance from us. When God does not give an immediate answer to our prayers and does not arise to help us. But as I said, this psalm is a prophetic psalm about Jesus. So according to Psalm 22, verse 2, who is speaking here? Not David. Actually, it is the Messiah. Jesus Christ is the one who is speaking this petition. David said, Do not keep silent, O God of my praise. Although God is silent, but he called him what? God of my praise. So all my praises are directed to you, although I feel that you are silent. David would not plead his God apart from being a man given to the praise of God. So David is a man, give his life to praise God, but in the same time, he's asking God not to be silent. God is the author and matter of all David's praises. And David's glory only in God 
and not in any wisdom or strength of his own. Now, verse 2, he is explaining why he is asking God not to be silent. He said, For the mouth of the wicked and the mouth of the deceitful have opened against me. They have spoken against me with a lying tongue. Now he is explaining why God don't be silent. Because the mouth of the wicked and the mouth of the deceitful have opened against me. They have spoken against me with a lying tongue. So the mouth of the wicked spoke against him, so he prayed that God would not be silent. He did not want the mouth of the deceitful to have the last word because they are lying. They speak against him freely, boldly, publicly, without any fear or shame. They have accused him of things which are not true and made false charges against him. And of course we remember how during the trial of our Lord Jesus Christ, many false witnesses came and accused the Lord Jesus Christ falsely with many false accusations. The psalmist suffered the deceit of his enemies, whose words were characterized with three features. Wicked, deceit, lying. The mouth of the wicked. Wicked, deceit, lying. David gave love and compassion and got back hatred. In all this, David has been a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. God is love. Jesus Christ the love. That's why in verse 3, he said, They have also surrounded me with words of hatred and fought against me without a cause. Without a cause. In return for my love, the Lord Jesus Christ was healing them, feeding them, raising their dead, wandering from place to place to do good. But in return for my love, they are my accuser. Crucify him, crucify him. But I give myself to prayer. So as the Jews did to Christ when they conspired against him, their mouths were opened and they poured out their lies and reproaches very freely, insulting him and his character. As we read in Mark chapter 14, a lying tongue, false witnesses rose up against Christ. In Mark 14, now the chief priests and all the council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimonies did not agree. Then some rose up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. But not even then did their testimony agree. David was confident in his innocence in reference to his enemies. He did not do anything bad to them. Their harsh words were spoken with a lying tongue, and their words of hatred were without a cause, without a cause. There was no reason. The hatred of the wicked for the good is an apparent fact of history and indisputable. Like until recently, when they killed the martyrs of Libya or many in in Minyan, Hamadi, all this without a cause. They didn't do anything for them to kill them. This is a fact over the years. 
and they surrounded me. The enemies attacked him on every side, in every form, and he could not go anywhere. That is the meaning of surrounded me. They surrounded also Christ on the cross and expressed their malice and hatred against him. St. Jerome applies this verse to Christ. Actually, we say it during the Holy Week. They have also surrounded me with words of hatred and fought against me without a cause. So St. Jerome says, For what excuse did they fight me as if Christ is speaking? What there is excuse to fight me? Is it because I healed their sick? Is it because I brought their dead back to life? When someone plots with hatred against another and does not succeed, he persecutes him without a cause. So in previous verses, David insisted that the hatred of his enemies against him was without cause. Then he explained that he actually extended love to his adversaries, but they gave David evil for good, hatred for love. Many of the fathers and commentators have understood the main part of the things spoken here, referring to our Lord Jesus Christ and the treatment he received from the Jews. As I said, he healed their sick, he raised their dead, he fed them when they were hungry, he showed them love, and in return, they showed him hatred, crucify him, crucify him. If we apply these verses to David, the more he tried to please them, his enemies, the more they hated them. For example, King Saul hated David without a cause. Absalom, his son, the same. Achitophel, or Duag the Edomite. And we wonder, how is it possible that any should be so wicked? How people become so wicked to the extent they persecute somebody without a cause? Since there have been so many instances of this wickedness in the world, so we should not wonder if any be so wicked against us because they are tools in the hand of Satan. How David responded to this? But I give myself to prayer. David's response was proper. Even using a New Testament understanding, I give myself to prayer. When we are surrounded by hatred, the only way to withstand all of this is prayer. The following verses are filled with better wishes that form something of a prophecy, as I explained, of what will happen to Judas Iscariot. Yet David did nothing to bring this faith against them. That was God's work, not his own. So what happened to Judas? Not because David cursed him. What happened to the enemies of David? Not because David cursed them. But it was God's work who said, Vengeance in mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But it was declared here as a prophecy. So as for David, he would give himself to prayer and leave it with the Lord. I will put it in front of you, and you do what you see right in your eyes. I give myself to prayer. Literally, I am all prayer. I am all prayer. That's actually the exact translation. So he prayed constantly for his enemies. He desired their good. And when we apply this to Christ, he showed so much love to the Jews. 
in going about and healing all manner of diseases among them. He showed love to all mankind in coming into our world to save us, which should have commanded love again. We should actually return this love by love. But instead of this, they became his merciless adversaries. Crucify him, crucify him. St. John Chrysostom says, Do you see the sound values? Do you see the meekness? Do you see the piety of the spirit? I have not taken up arms, he is saying, nor gone to battle. Instead, I have had recourse to you, invoked your aid, your influence, the greatest weapon, invisible assistance. St. John Chrysostom is saying, do you see the, the love of God? Do you see his meekness, his piety? He did not take weapons in his hand. He did not go to battle. Rather, he actually was going from place to place to serve them. And Christ prayed on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. The Lord Jesus Christ came to seek and to save that which was lost. Yet they hated him and would not have him to rule over them. They rejected his kingdom. St. Jerome speaks as if Christ is speaking. When I was hanged on the cross, I prayed for my crucifiers, while they scoffed at me, saying, You who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If he is the Son of God, let God deliver him now, if he will have him. For their sake, I resurrected from the dead. He rose from the dead for their sake. If they believed in him, they would be saved, even those who crucified him. But they claim his disciples came at night and stole him away. And hatred for my love, they repaid my love with hatred. Think deeply, O Christian, if the Lord responded to his betrayer's kiss, how he responded to Judas, he did not kill him. If he prayed, for the sake of his persecutors, what would be our duty toward our brethren? What we should do toward those who hate us? Verse 5, Thus they have rewarded me evil for good, and hatred for my love. Repaid evil for good, hatred for my love. Sit a wicked man over him, and let an accuser stand at his right hand. He's speaking about Judas. From verse 6, it's very clear prophecies about Judas. So the thought of wickedness, of this ingratitude, overpowers the psalmist. He breaks out suddenly, after verse 5, into a passionate prayer that appropriate retribution may fall upon the offender. So he's saying some punishment will fall on the offender. But David predicted or prophesied the righteous judgment to come rather than pronouncing it. So David did not wish this to happen, but the Holy Spirit uttered on the mouth of David what will happen. Because David was well known for being a long-suffering and a merciful man. David, for example, could have killed King Saul twice if he wanted to. The first thing he is asking that his enemy might be subject to the evil of having a wicked man over him. Set a wicked man over him, to rule over him, and let an accuser stand at his right hand. By the way, one of the titles of Satan is accuser. 
the accuser. This way in Arabic, وَلْيَقْفْ شَيْطَانٌ عَنْ يَمِينِهِ A wicked man. The psalmist now speaks of his enemy in a singular. Why? It's a prophecy about Judas. So now he's not speaking about enemies, plural, one enemy. He here focuses on one particular person that was worse than the rest of his enemies. He does that in a sincere manner, not from a principle of evil and revenge, but in a holy zeal for God and against sin. And with an eye to the enemies of Christ, he points to whom? To Judas, who betrayed him, whose sin was greater than Pontius Pilate that condemned him. So he protects his destruction, foresees and pronounces him completely wretched, as our Savior calls him a son of perdition. The curse David had in mind was of the guilty one, would be left without help, and instead would have Satan stand at his right hand. So after a wicked man rules over him, he will be left without help, rather Satan will stand at his right hand. If the destiny of that traitor came as a response to a prayer, yet the Lord Jesus Christ, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth, does not wish such a miserable destiny, even to the one who betrayed him. So again, what happened to Judas is not because of this prayer, because of this psalm, I'm repeating this over and over, but here it is just prediction. The Holy Spirit prophesied on the mouth of David what would happen to Judas. But the wicked man chose to be in the company of Satan and under his authority. Because Judas chose to be under the rule of Satan and in the company of Satan and under his authority, that's why he is suffered all of this. What dwelt on him and on his household is nothing but a natural consequence of what he has chosen by his own free will. So the enemy here is Judas, who is known for his enmity and ingratitude to Christ. And David said, set a wicked man over him. Let an accuser, Satan, as he is sometimes called, because Satan is called the accuser. Into the hand and the power of, of Satan, Judas put himself. Judas put himself into the hand and the power of Satan. As we read in John chapter 13, verse 2, the devil having already put it in the, into the heart of Judas, is carried Simon's son to betray him. So now, who is controlling Judas? Satan. Let an accuser stand at his right hand, Satan, as his counselor and advisor. So who will be the counselor? Who will be the guide to Judas? Satan. Such wickedness could not always escape justice, and sooner or later he will be judged and found guilty. As we read in verse 7, when he is judged, let him be found guilty and let his prayer become sin. If Judas is judged, he is guilty, and his prayer becomes sin, will not be acceptable. When this should occur, the psalmist pray that justice might be done, that he might be condemned as he ought to be. The word, let him be found guilty, let him be found guilty, 
let him go out immediately from the presence of the judge into eternal punishment, the condemnation of the devil. So Judas is said to go to his own place, as we read in Acts chapter 1, verse 25. So Judas found guilty and he went to Hades. Let his prayer become sin, meaning what? Let it be fruitless and in vain and far from being heard by God. David prophesied that the wicked man's days be few because he hanged himself and killed himself, which happened to Achitophel and also happened to Judas, who hanged themselves and the Jews' nation was destroyed by the Romans 70 AD. This verse 8, let his days be few and let another take his office. This about Matthias, take the place of Judas. Let his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. Length of days, either beyond or according the usual term of life, was considered a blessing, and the shorten of life is considered a curse. Of course, many saints died in, in a young age, like Kyriakos, like Abanob, like John the Baptist. Here, the days was God. Let another take his office, for Achitophel, Hushai the Archite took his office, took the place of Achitophel. But here David, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, quoted by St. Peter to determine that the apostles should replace Judas in their apostolic number. The hateful enemy described by David was certainly pointing to Judas. So this enemy is Judas, who fought against Jesus Christ without cause, and rewarded the good Jesus, the good Jesus did to him with evil. St. Augustine says, for prayer is not righteous, he's commenting about let his prayer be sent. Prayer is not righteous except through Christ. So when we stand before God the Father in Christ, our prayer will be, will be righteous, whom he sought in his atrocious sin. But prayer, which is not made through Christ, not only cannot blot out our sins, but itself it turn it into sin. But it may be inquired on what occasion Judas could have so prayed. What is the prayer that Judas prayed and became sin? That his prayer were turned into sin. So St. Augustine answering this question, I suppose that before he betrayed the Lord, while he was thinking of betraying him, for he could no longer pray through Christ. For after he betrayed him and repented of it, if he prayed through Christ, he would ask for pardon. If he asked for pardon, for he would have hope. If he had hope, he would hope for mercy. And if he hoped for mercy, he would not have hanged himself in despair. So he's saying most probably he prayed, for example, before betraying Christ, he prayed, God, cover me. God, let it go peacefully with me. And this prayer was not through Christ. That's why it became sin. But St. Augustine says, is after betraying Christ, he repented and he prayed and asked for the mercies of God, God would have forgiven him. David prophesied that the fate to come upon this hateful enemy would extend to his family, not only to him, but to his family. The curse of his transgressions 
falls even upon his wife and children. Wicked men, by their wicked courses, bring destruction upon their wives and children, whom they ought to take care of and provide for. So instead of taking care of their families, they became curse to their families. And his short life means what? Means his children will be orphans and his wife would be widowed. This might have literally been fulfilled in Judas after he killed himself. And Judas definitely had a wife and children. Although we know nothing about Judas' family, some people say he may not have been married and have no children, but the tradition says he was married and has children. According to some scholars, maybe the children refer to the fruit of the body and the spirit. Judas, having borne no fruit, no fruit of the Holy Spirit, of the living faith, for he gave his back to Christ, rejected the fatherhood of God, and was deprived of the heavenly throne, so he became fatherless. Fatherless means he doesn't have children. His soul became a widow. Judas became fatherless and his soul became a widow. If God confirms that every man is responsible for his own sins, a son does not bear the guilt of the father. Why would the curse dwell upon the children and wife of Judas the traitor? So that's a question. If everyone carries his own sin and the guilt of his sin, why we say his wife become widow and his children become fatherless? According to St. John Chrysostom, he's answering this question. He said, the holy book used to call those bound to man in evil or those who partake of his evil, his children, even though they are not so by nature, natural children. For example, when the Jews are called the children of the devil, although they could never be as such on account of that they are closed with human bodies, while devil is a spirit without a body. Yet, they have certainly acquired such a relationship through partaking of his evil. The Lord rejecting to refer to the Jews as children of Abraham, when he said, if you are Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. St. John Chrysostom trying to answer the question, why the curse extend to his wife and to his children? So he say his wife and children, not literally his natural wife and his natural children, but his children in evil, his spouse in evil, although it is not literally his wife or his children. Indeed, according to the law, the son is not to be punished for the iniquities of the father, nor father for the iniquities of the son. But the exception is, if the father raises his son on evil, then the father would be punished not for the iniquities of the son, but for his negligence in raising his son the proper way, like what happened with Eli the priest. If a father raised his children in evil, the children will perish and the father will be punished also. Verse 10, let his children continually be vagabonds and beg. Let them seek their bread also from their 
desolate places. Be vagabond meaning wander from place to place. Begging, they become beggars for bread. This was a warning to the children of Eli when a man of God came to him and told him, and it shall come to pass that everyone who is left in your house will come and bow down to him for a piece of silver and a morsel of bread. And was very likely literally true of the children of Judas. They were like lost and begging for bread. And was certainly the case of multitudes of the children of the Jews, especially during the destruction of Jerusalem at year 70 AD by the Romans. When great numbers were dispersed and wandered about in various countries as vagabonds, the Jews, begging their bread from door to door. Let them seek their bread also from their desolate places, in places uninhabited by men, in barren regions, in desert. It may mean places into which they are fled for fear and shame, as not daring to show their faces amongst men. So maybe the children of Judas were embarrassed, ashamed. That's why they fled into uninhabited places. The house of the Jews was left desolate, as the Lord said, your house would be left desolate. Their temple, as our Lord Jesus said it in Matthew 23:38, and all their other houses in Jerusalem and Judea were destroyed during the attack by the Romans in year 70 AD. Verse 11, let the creditor seize all that he has, and let strangers plunder his labor. Let the creditor seize, it is a clear word for the cunning plans by which a dishonest creditor or unreasonable money lender would arrange to get possession of all a man's property. So this creditor here is cunning, dishonest, and sees all his property. So in delivering up his property as ruins to the creditor, David was referring to the poverty which was to overtake his children, the children of the traitor, and the poverty that the Jews suffered after the destruction of Jerusalem. Because he is not speaking of a poor and mean person who at his death can leave nothing to his family, but he is speaking of one who, regardless of right or wrong, has collected wealth to enrich his children, but from whom God takes away the goods which he had unrighteously taken from others. And this was true in Judas because he was a thief and a robber for the money box. Many of these curses literally were fulfilled in the case of the Jews after the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. They were not only expelled from their own country after the destruction of Jerusalem, but they were prohibited from returning to Jerusalem. Also, they were taxed by the Roman government that they become extremely poor. But who is the creditor in verse 11? Who is the creditor who would seize all what the wicked man has? And who are the strangers who would plunder his labor 
it is the devil. The creditory is the devil and his armies who attempt to use all the gifts of man, all his power, all his energy, all his talents, capabilities, emotions to work for the account of the kingdom of darkness. Verse 12, let there be none to extend the mercy to him, nor let there be any to favor his fatherless children. In his need, he will not find anyone to show mercy upon him. Let none of his neighbors continue to show him mercy and love and kindness. Let them stand distant and remain passive while punishment overtakes them. There will be none to show kindness to his offspring. Let them too suffer and endure the afflictions which came naturally upon them through their father's wrong deeds. So no pity is ever expressed at hearing or reading the sad case of Judas. Also in the last destruction of the Jews by the Romans, no mercy was shown them. The wrath of God and man has come upon them to the uttermost. Verse 13, let his posterity be cut off and in the generation following let their name be plotted out. In general, any Israelite or any Jew with his strong sense of family solidarity looked forward to living on in his descendant. So his descendant carry his name. That's why the genealogy, you can see it frequently mentioned in the Old Testament. It was regarded among them as one of the greatest and most desirable blessings that his name will continue through his descendant. So the destruction and elimination of the family was contemplated as the most terrible of adversities. So the wish of the prophet is that the wicked may be so completely ruined as never to be able to regain the former state. For thus much is implied in the word, the generation following let their name be plotted out. So nothing will be remembered in the future. Be cut off as a tree to the very root as the Jewish nation was by the acts of God's judgment when the John the Baptist said, even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into fire. And as a destruction which he charges against the houses, therefore every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And as a destruction which he charges against the houses and the families of the wicked is so extensive that God punishes them in the person of their posterity, so he desires God may remember the iniquities of their fathers and mothers in order that their condemnation may be complete. As we read in verse 14, let the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord, and let not the sin of his mother be blotted out. By asking that the iniquities of their fathers and mothers be remembered, so he is asking for a complete condemnation. So the destruction will not be only again in the houses and the families of the wicked, but 
it will extend to their descendant. So the curse must strike backward, fathers and their mothers, as well as forward, generation following, backward and forward, and the root as well as the branch uh, to be destroyed. The root of the tree and the branches. The root is backward, fathers and mother, and the branches, the generation to come. Saint Jerome says, they sinned in the wilderness, and the Lord forgave them. But now he holds it against them because they crucified the Lord. Let not the sin of his mother be blotted out. Who is Judah's mother? It is Jerusalem, not the biological mother, who rejoiced in the blood, who murdered the prophets and the Lord himself. Verse 15, let them be continually before the Lord, that he may be cut off the memory of them from the earth. This would be the last verse, verse 15. Let them be continually before the Lord. Let these sins be present to the mind of God constantly. St. Augustine says he means that this great crime should be without pardon, both here and in a future life. And that God may cut off the memory of them from the earth. So this actually concludes our Bible study for tonight. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen.